Today, we're continuing in our Old Testament series, but it's going to be slightly different because Anne and I are going to do a tag team act. And we're going to be speaking, we've titled it Profiting from the Prophets, and our goal this morning is to help us get more out of reading the prophetic books in the Old Testament by understanding what they are about and how they speak to us. And uh, we're going to we're going to do uh, three things basically. As, after an introduction, we're going to look at a passage from Isaiah, the beginning of Isaiah, and then uh, Anne's going to speak about some um, principles for understanding the prophets, and then we'll get end with a, with looking at the prophet Joel. So I'm just going to hand you over to Anne now. Now we. Um... Although we've spoken together before, we've never quite done it in this format. So um, if we look as if we're making it up as we go along, we very slightly are. And I need to remind Anne that we've we've been given permission when we're preaching not to wear a mask. (laughs) Phew! Gosh, that's better. I hate having a sweaty face. Anyway, so the prophets. So this past week, well, little while, I was reading this book. It's called How to Read and Understand the Biblical Prophets. It's by our friend Peter Gentry. You can see from the post-it notes that I was very diligent. Um, I didn't underline because Andrew had been underlining, so I wouldn't have been able to tell which were my bits. And um, he made some very interesting points. And uh, one of the things... So I, I thought we could interact with some of these points that I read. And basically... These are the points I noted down when I read the book, and then we'll expand on those in a minute. That when the prophets spoke, everything they said was is based in the covenant that God had made with his people at Sinai. I mean, there's other things as well, but just that's a very basic point. Prophecy is not exclusively to predict the future. It's not like a sort of Christian farmer's almanac. You know, we can look at it to find out what's going to happen in the year 2540 or something. You know, it's... um, And the other thing, coming out of that, it occurred to me that like about 30% of the Old Testament is these prophetic writings. Well, why? Why are they there? And um, why is it only the later prophets who had their writings written down. Why isn't there a book that Elijah wrote or Elisha? I mean, there are books called Samuel, but that's because they're about Samuel, not because they were his writings. So why do we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, you know, all the rest of them, which I only can remember to a tune, which is why I'm not going to sing it to you. Um, Now, one, uh, having read all these things, One thing occurred to me that one way not to approach the prophets is to open a prophetic book and think, oh my goodness, biblical prophecy is always so weird. No one understands it. This must be, there must be weird symbolism in here. Let me start counting the letters in this and adding up the numbers as if it's some kind of code. We are reading the Bible. God wants to communicate with human beings. This isn't a Dan Brown novel. It's not the Da Vinci Code. God wants us to understand it. He doesn't want us to have to have a degree in at least arithmetic to understand it. So one of the things that I realized 
was really came home to me from reading Peter's book was that when the prophets spoke, they spoke to actual people in an actual situation. With their words meant something at the time to the people around them. Now, most of these prophets were speaking towards the end of the existence of um, the kingdom, sort of shortly before they were taken away into captivity. So these words are speaking into that actual situation. A lot of it is warning them what's going to happen. Then also the, prof- the, the prophetic words have an aspect of what will happen once you are taken into exile? And there's these words about how God will bring them back. And then there are words that speak to an even more distant future. So all these things are encompassed in what the prophets say. Now, it's really important that people had these things written down because some of these words would come into play long after the prophet was dead. So imagine, you're one of these people in the nation of Israel. Because you've disobeyed the covenant, the consequences of disobeying the covenant are now playing out. And you are, you've ignored all God's warnings, all his pleadings to return, and the nation has been taken into captivity. So your, your, your country's been destroyed, your city's been destroyed, your temple has been destroyed, and you're marched off into captivity. And when you're marching into Babylon, we have the picture. Through the Ishtar Gate, this stunning piece of architecture. This is a recreation in the um, uh, museum in Berlin. You're going to think, oh, the Babylonian gods are way more powerful than our god. That's why we're here. Look at this. You know, these people, what chance did we stand? Our god has failed. But no, they have the writings of the prophets. They can understand they are in this situation because they ignored God's warnings. They can understand that God is still in control. He is still greater than the gods of the Babylonians because he has promised he will restore them. They know his word's true because what he said has happened to them. So what he says will happen to them will happen to them. And so they can understand that he is still in control. And this is a really vital part of why this was written down, why it was recorded. And it also, later generations might look back on this bit of history and think, well, why did this happen? It's all explained. This is explained. This is why we understand why they went into exile. And so this is a a really important part of the prophets. So now we're going to look at... Um, the book of Isaiah, some some passages in Isaiah, which actually demonstrate all these aspects of speaking to the people now, speaking to the people in the near future, and then speaking into the distant future, and bringing hope. So, over to Andrew. So my role in this sermon preparation was to find script... uh, parts in the prophets that really illustrated the principles we're trying to teach today. And I feel that the opening verses in Isaiah really do that well. So I'm going to read them through, and at each, at each block, Anne's going to make some comments. Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have raised children 
and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children, they have abandoned the Lord, despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. And this is how the book of Isaiah opens. So Isaiah, Isaiah is making it really clear that they have turned their backs on God. They've basically broken the covenant. And so this this is this is how he starts. Like, you know, this is what we were saying. It was he was speaking to people at the time. What are all your sacrifices to me? asked the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. And then here the reason is, your hands are covered in blood. In other words, they are out of time. God has been patient with them. They've gone away from him, he's forgiven them. They've gone away from him, he's forgiven them. For about 800 years. And now what he said would happen is going to happen. So now it becomes more specific. What does it mean to go away from God? What's happened? Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil, learn to do what is good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor. The oppressor. So injustice and oppression that's going on. Defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Even now, God is still calling them. They can return to him. They can still enter into behaving in the right way according. The covenant is more than just the Ten Commandments. It's more than that they are just going after other gods or murdering and stealing. The whole the, the Torah is based around this idea of of, of justice, of caring for the weak, of caring for the needy, of the whole nation watching out for one another. And that is what they have not been doing. That is the bit that grieves God's heart. And that's how they've broken the covenant and why they're going into captivity. And this is so important because they represent God to the nations. The nations can learn who God is in theory, by looking at Israel. And if they are a mass of injustice and oppression, what does that say about God's name? Come, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. 
for the mouth of the Lord God has spoken. So if they come back, he will forget. He'll put away all these things that have offended him. It's like they, they can come back to him and start with a clean slate and start following the covenant again. But if they don't, then the consequences will happen. The faithful city, what an adulteress she has become. She was once full of justice. Righteousness once dwelt in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross to be discarded. Your wine is diluted with water. What they're talking about is that they are actually selling wine by diluting it with water and it's, 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 um, uh, they're cheating. They're cheating. They're, the trade has become corrupted by cheating. And the silver is not really genuine silver. Your real rulers are rebels, friends of thieves. They're, they all love graft and chase after bribes. They do not defend the rights of the fatherless and the widow's case never comes before them. So this is what they have become. This is the description of Isaiah saying to them, this is what you are like now. And it's, you know, it's, you compare that to verse 17, doing what's good and pursuing justice. You know, there's these two pairs in, in the Old Testament. You know, we, we, we learned about, um, uh, Hesed and Emmet. Truth and, truth and steadfast love. And then there's justice and righteousness. And they're not doing the justice. They're not doing what should flow out of the truth and love. And so, you know, he's, this is really clear. Therefore, the Lord God of armies, the mighty one of Israel declares, ah, I will get relief from my enemies. I will avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will burn away your dross completely. The dross is the impurity in gold or silver. I will remove all your impurities. I will restore your judges to what they were at first and your advisors to what they were at the start. <clears throat> Afterward, you'll be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Now, it's important to note that this beginning of Isaiah was written before they were taken into captivity so that they could read it when they're in their captivity and they could see this is why we are here. And it's when you're reading the prophets, if you've got a Bible that has an introduction explaining when it was written and the context is very helpful. If your Bible doesn't do that, then there are lots of study Bibles online that will give you that and help you understand the context into which this prophecy was spoken. So God's here, God's giving the reason now for why he's doing what he's doing. He's not just a mean parent who says, I didn't want you to do that, whack. He's doing this to really to bring them to their senses, to bring them back to him so that they will come back to him with all this stuff cleaned away, all this all this lack of faithfulness, everything will be washed away and this is to purify them and bring them back. So even in what seems to be an awful situation, actually it's part of God caring for them. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord 
shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So here's the encouragement that they can read in these words. They will come back to Jerusalem. They'll rebuild the city. They'll build another temple. But yet, there's more here in these words than was fulfilled by them coming back. There's much more. And so we find that, well, I'm going to come on to this later. We'll do another little section about this. You can see that there's sort of multiple fulfillments of things. That doesn't mean that because all this didn't happen, it wasn't fulfilled in them coming back to Jerusalem, but just this, God's much more complex. And so um, when we read the bit about, you know, many nations shall flow to it, that wasn't happening when they came back from the exile. That wasn't what was going on. That many peoples, this is something that is the future for them, But we see it now. I mean, I can look around here and there's probably, I was trying to have a quick count, but I lost count at about eight different nations represented just in the few people in this room. You know, so we're in this, the full, at this prophecy is being fulfilled among us now. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. World peace. O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. I'm not going to go into a full, uh, different full discussion of people's different eschatological views, but this is looking right into the future. Where do we know for certain there will be no war? Heaven. Yes, the new on the new earth. And so, you know, at the very least, this is talking about the future future that we all look forward to. And the very last phrase, O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. God is still pleading with them. Come. How could they have forsaken a God like this? So uh, we've looked at uh first two chapters of Isaiah. And now we're going to look at some general principles and then end by looking at Joel. So one of the things was that we have to, like I said before, we have to remember this was written for people to understand at the time. It wasn't all written about some vague distant future. You can't look at it and say, Isaiah hadn't a clue what he was writing, but at some point in the future, we're all going to understand this. No, this spoke to people at the time. It spoke to people in exile. It spoke to people when they came back from exile. But like we saw in that bit about you know them coming back to Jerusalem, a lot of ideas are all mushed in together. And... A word for this is a prophetic perspective. And one, a prophecy can be, 
incompletely fulfilled. It, it is the prophecy coming true, but it's not all of it. And it can be completely fulfilled by a later event or maybe other later events. Eventually, it's all going to happen. But from the view of the prophet, that was all in the future. I have a really good illustration of this with some photographs we took when we were on our train journey. What's that in the background? The Rockies. And we get closer. Oh, closer Rockies. But it's still just a bunch of mountains. As you get closer, you realize there's different ranges of them. And you can get really close and see a mountain. Then you can see one that you know the name of. And you can see Mount Robson. So as you get closer, things become clearer. And that's really a sort of um, illustration of how prophetic perspective works. From Isaiah's time, these things were all in the future. It looked like this to him. But when you arrive at this event, you realize there's more in, in the future to come. And so I, I thought that the train pictures were quite a good illustration of that. So a good example of that would be the day of the Lord, which is a phrase used repeatedly in, in Isaiah as well as many of the other books. And we're going to see it in, in Joel as well. And the, the day of the Lord is something Anne's going to talk about now. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's reading my notes. I, uh, um, so when we, when we look back and we can see that prophecies are fulfilled, we know that God keeps his word and we can be sure that what he says is going to happen will happen. And it's also real reassurance for us that God actually really, um, really, really cares for his people. Now, when the prophets often speak of this much more distant future about the day of the Lord. They'll talk about the day of the Lord. And you read day of the Lord prophecies and it's a day of gloom and despair. It's, it's horror and destruction. It's all these dreadful things that are happening when the Lord comes. When did the Lord come? Well, multiple times. Well, when was the first time he came? Oh, come on, it's nearly Christmas. I'll give you a clue. <laughs> okay, so when the Lord first came, he was a baby in a manger. Where was the gloom and darkness? Where was the destruction of God's enemies? You know? And so, I mean, Andrew's going to, I'm going to leave that bit to Andrew to explain. But there, there's still to come a day of the Lord. And I'm going to let Andrew just have a brief explanation of why it's two and how it all happens. And I'm just dropping a minute here. Sure. So we're going to see in Joel how the day of the Lord, actually I'll leave it till we get to there, but the day of the Lord is specifically talked about and then what's going to happen, but then obviously it's not completely fulfilled. So let me give you one more example of this, and that is um, Daniel speaks about the abomination that makes desolate, about some horrible thing that's going to happen in the temple. And we know that um, that uh, in the time of um of uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was uh, invaded Palestine before Jesus' time, he desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar. And the uh, faithful Jews at that time were able to cleanse the temple. But then Jesus said this event is still going to come. And what Jesus predicted 
it was it was occurred with the Romans did this, essentially the same kind of thing by de- desecrating the temple, but then in Revelation it says the the, the the event in the future, and so sometimes you can have an event which has multiple um, multiple uh, fulfillments, and sometimes the earlier fulfillments are, are like. Um, uh, pictures of the later fulfillments that, that happened, some on a kind of physical level, and then later on a spiritual level. Well, the Romans went further than sacrificing a pig. They actually destroyed the temple, mm. which was yeah. fairly desecrating, I think. Yeah. Also, we're going to see um, language about um, darkness and stars falling and various things like that, uh, things in the heavens. And we learn, as we read the prophets, there's a language the prophets use. And it's a consistency that when it talks about the stars falling, it's um, it's talking about governments falling, about rulers falling, about earthly powers falling, and uncertainty about about rulers. And so we see a kind of a language builds up through the Old Testament that people know what's being talked about because this is how it's understood. And so when we get to the book of Revelation, one of the best ways of understanding it is by reading Daniel because he's using so many of the images that are defined in Daniel and they're very clear in Daniel. And then since they're well known in the culture, he can then use them assuming that people have read Daniel and know how to use those particular images. And so a lot of the sort of war and destruction imagery that we see in Day of the Lord prophecies, when as we know from what Andrew's taught us in the past, when Jesus came, we do see God having victory over his enemies. This is God having victory. I mean, the ultimate victory was Jesus dying on the cross. This is the ultimate victory of God over the ultimate enemy. And so... God is having the victory over the powers behind the nations. This death and destruction isn't death and destruction necessarily for individuals. This is death and destruction for everything that opposes God. And we see that begins in Jesus. And so in some ways, the day of the Lord started with Jesus and there'll be a day of the Lord at the end of the time. But it's like, it's a much longer day than we expected. In some way, you could say we are living in the day of the Lord. And every time we speak the gospel to someone, every time someone comes into God's kingdom, someone is saved. That's another defeat of an enemy of God. It's another bit of this war language coming to pass. Yes, and that's something that when we can remember when we see some parts of the prophets that seem quite violent and they seem to be really like destructive and lots of blood and so on. But when you read how the New Testament writers will often interpret those, um, for example, Paul takes a passage that speaks of God uh, destroying his enemies and bringing them back as captives in his train and Ephesians tells us that we are the captives. We are brought back. So it turns out that what's destroyed is the, the power and we're the captives brought into his kingdom. And then when there's such dramatic 
numbers of people saved in the beginning of the book of Acts. Vast numbers coming to the kingdom. You know, the, the power of Satan is, is, is broken. They quote Psalm 2, which says, he, he will break the nations with a rod of iron. He'll smash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. So this smashing turns out to be the power that's holding them back from coming into the kingdom. And it turns out that what was, what was given by the prophets in a very physical level, and of course did have some, many cases of very physical, immediate, uh, um, fulfillment. fulfillment. The ultimate fulfillment of God's victory was one that, that happened in a spiritual dimension. Okay. I just, no, we can go on with Joel, I think. Okay, you, so let's look think? at Joel. So um, what I want to do in this last part is to look at how we can be blessed by reading the prophets, not just to understand them, but what can be spoken to our hearts from them. And I want to read some... Uh, I, I, I just, yesterday, I, I read Joel just to, uh, to, to, to think about this, and it just really struck me, and I'm going to share with you what... I felt struck me from Joel. And, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so let, I'm going to read the whole thing, just some, some key verses. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? And now this is a part that you've probably seen before. Tell it to your children. Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. And uh, so this, this is actually uh, a literal locust plague he's talking about, and this is the prophecy it's about to happen. This is absolute devastation of all their livelihood. And awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers, of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. And we're going to see that this nation is actually a nation of little little insects. Its teeth are like a lion's teeth. It has fangs of a lioness. It laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It stripped off their bark and thrown it down, and their branches are made white. Go on. We're just building the tension here. <laughs> Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. So here the day of the Lord is actually God um, bringing this plague on them. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor it will be again after them through through the through the years of all generations. So it's like you you know you're like looking out from wherever you live in Israel, and it's as if the hills around are covered with this army of these locusts but it pictures it like an actual army this is an incredibly clever clever picture this is an amazing chapter apparently they can make the sky dark when there's yeah there's just this is like the 
Locust plague to end all locust plagues, this one. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. So that's the symbolism there. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. Do you want to say something about that? Yeah, apparently. Um, well, I never looked closely at a locust. I'm not big on those sort of insects. Um, but they've got faces like little horses. And someone told me that the Italian word for locust is like horse face or little horse or something, if you translate it literally. Um, I haven't even looked that up. I just remembered that from when we did this in Hebrew class. But... Um, that, so, you know, it's picturing them like little horses. But this war imagery, it, it, it just continues right through this picture. It gets creepier as we go along. As with the, with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, the peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the walls. <laughs> These are crawling up the wall. They march each one on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons. They're not halted. They leap upon the city. They run up upon the walls. They climb up into houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. It's like these locusts, each one is just going straight ahead of him. And by the end of that section, they are all over the city. You pretty can't move without... Oh. So that's painted the picture, oh not quite, the earthquakes before them, the heaven tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters the voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great, he who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome, who can endure it? Return to the Lord. And now this is the whole point, that they're called back to return to God. And this is the call. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me. Now, I just, I just think this, the passage with the locusts is, I mean, it's talking about this plague of locusts, which is, this is sort of one of the things along the way. This isn't the end of time. They're not actually about to be taken into captivity. But, you know, this is one of the reminders, one of the ways God tried to bring him back to himself. But it has these overtones of what will happen with an actual army. Although it's talking about locusts, it's kind of there, you know. It's These locusts are a warning of what could actually happen. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. And that word steadfast love is the one I preached on a few months ago. Chesed, the love that will not let you go. And to me, what we're really seeing, the key takeaway from this passage in Joel, is a revelation of the heart of God. He doesn't want to bring these locusts. He doesn't want to bring bad stuff. He wants to pour out blessing on them. And the only reason he's doing this is because he loves them so much that he wants them to come back to him. And so God's heart is is to show grace, to show mercy, and to to bring good things to them. Can I say something? 
Yeah, go ahead. And, and those, even those verses, you know, the Lord, he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is how God describes himself to his people when he made the covenant with them. And he's saying to them, this is who I have always been for all these hundreds of years. So let's wrap this up. Then the Lord became jealous for his land. He had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you'll be satisfied. I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. You may hear people quote that verse because out of context, but it's really God, God, God's heart for them that he only brought these bad things into their lives to bring them back to him. The hopper, the destroyer and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who's dealt wondrously with you. My people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and I am the Lord your God and there is no one else. And so this, this, in some ways, this turns the whole thing around. I mean, to start with, it seems like death, destruction, gloom, suffering, horror. But actually, it's so that God can bless. And God, had they turned to God... Had the nation come back to God in repentance and followed him wholeheartedly, history would look different as we look back on it. But they didn't. But yet he still calls them. And he still wants to... It's like, it's not just he calls them back, but he's going to undo the effects of this plague which he used to bring them to him. My people should never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now we know this is what Peter quoted on the day of Pentecost and said this is being fulfilled now. These words are being fulfilled now. It's really helpful when New Testament writers quote the prophets and tell us what it means because, you know, that's the Holy Spirit interpreting his own words. But you can see that that the day of the Lord is multiple fulfillment. And this was like a key element. But still, as we'll see, it's not quite complete. The day of the Lord won't be complete until Jesus returns. Um, but we can see verse 32 was absolutely, the number people called on the name of the Lord and they were saved. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you sh- shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. In that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk for the Lord dwells in Zion. So this wraps it up. And obviously this is symbolic language of the, you know, the, the, the wine coming down the mountains. But this is a picture of, I believe, 
ultimately the uh, the new Jerusalem where Jesus is dwelling there. Of course, he's already dwelling among his people, but the final dwelling place when God has dealt with all of the all of the bad stuff will be at that point. So, I think because these verses, because Peter quotes these verses, and because we can see now that this that the day of the Lord is Jesus came, but God he's yet to come again, and we're living in this day of the Lord. Peter quoted this. We know that these verses can apply to us. Because otherwise, what right would we have to say, well, Joel spoke this to the the, the nation of Israel, not quite sure when, but sometime a little while before they went into captivity. Why would it apply to us? You know, 2,500 years later. Because Peter shows us how it does, and because we now know that we live in this continuing fulfillment of this prophecy, because many nations are coming to Zion, are coming to us to hear the word of the Lord, because all the nations are being drawn in. As we see that around us, we can see that. So we can say, the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. The Lord is a refuge for us. So just to wrap up, and then I'll close in prayer. What really blessed me as I read Joel was to see God's heart for people. God's heart for me, how he longs to bless me. And if you're not a Christian today and you're listening to this, God, God's heart is that you would come and, and know him because he has so much for you. And God's not being mean and vindictive. God wants to give, wants to draw you closer in your life. He wants to give you a fuller revelation of who he is, a deeper pouring out of his love to you. He wants to do that, and he's calling you. And that's, for me, how the book of Joel spoke to me. And it encouraged me just to come to God in prayer and to know that he loves me so much. So let's close in prayer, shall we? Thank you, Father, for these books that you've given us, these prophetic books. Lord, we pray that you'll help us as we read them to really hear your heart in them. We pray your spirit will give us wisdom and insight as we read them. And you will encourage us to draw near to you because you love us and you care for us so much. And your heart heart for us is to bless us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.